scripture comes from Timothy, 2 Timothy, chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. I am grateful to God, whom I worship with a clear conscience, as my ancestors did, when I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that lived first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now... I am sure lives in you. For this reason, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is within you through the laying on of my hand. For God did not give us a spirit of cowardice, but rather a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. Grace and peace to you, beloved. My name is Amy Wilson-Feltz. I'm the pastor here at Morningstar. If you haven't had a chance to meet me just yet, it is a privilege to be with you on this beautiful morning on this Veterans Day weekend. I do want to say thank you to all of our veterans who have served and given their lives in so many ways. Yeah. We are deeply grateful. I invite you now to take a deep breath. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts together be pleasing in your sight this morning, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Everyone is afraid of something, whether we want to admit it or not. It is part of human nature. Some of our fears grow in our minds to the point that they become extreme, irrational even. We call those fears phobias. Research shows that Americans can readily identify several common phobias, including, in no particular order, Zombies? Seriously. Strangers, insects, small spaces, heights, water, darkness, public speaking, flying, and needles. So I'm curious, do any of you have these phobias at all? Yeah. Okay, you're not alone. I have a somewhat irrational fear of small spaces, for example. So I want to take a few minutes for you to talk with people near you or online in the comment section to, to decide or to guess what are the three top phobias in America from this list? What are the top three? I'm going to give you a minute to talk about it, and then we're going to come back. No, I think it was just adults who were pulled. Yeah. I thought you were saying children should be on the list. <laughs> like, well. okay. 
Oh, I, I think I found a natural pause there. Okay, so Laura asked, um, did that include children? And she meant were children included in the poll, but I thought she was asking, like, should children be on the list? <laughs> okay, so what do you have? What do you think? What are the top three? Just throw it, throw it out there. Insects, public speaking, needles, darkness. Zombies, Lainey says. Okay, heights. Yeah, we have some good, good guesses. So the number one answer is public speaking, followed closely by heights and insects. I do think, Lainey, that it is worth mentioning that almost 10% of people in America who are asked have a fear, a phobia of zombies. 10%. Oh. The he <laughs> uh, yeah, that, it could be included with insects. It was insects and animals. Zombies, y'all, can you imagine? The human brain is fascinating, no pun intended. Phobias are tricky because they are often rooted in legitimate fear, but they morph into something terrifying, paralyzing even, because part of us knows that we have something to fear. Fear, in its less extreme form, is an unpleasant emotion caused by the belief that something is dangerous, something will cause us pain or even death. And no one is immune to fear, as recent studies in America show that we Americans can quickly categorize our collective fear into five areas. And these are in order. Corruption in the US government, sickness and death of our loved ones, world war, particularly nuclear or biological, the destruction of the environment, and the collapse of our economy. Now, I'm not sure about you, but in my opinion, these fears are much more terrifying than swimming in deep water or meeting strangers or traveling in an airplane. They're much more real. We have reason to fear. The good news is that our God has given us not a spirit of fear or cowardice, but a spirit of power and love. That's what the Apostle Paul says in this letter that we call Second Timothy, from which we read this morning. Now, we talked about a passage a little bit later in Second Timothy a couple of weeks ago, but we're returning to this book in this two-part series called Both and A Realistic Approach to Faith. Today we're going to look at the relationship between fear and courage, and next week we're going to consider the role of doubt in faith. And the timing is not coincidental because we are headed into the season of Advent in just a couple of weeks, the season in which we profess some pretty outlandish claims, like God breaks into the world as a baby, born to a young woman who claims that the pregnancy is the work of the Holy Spirit. And just for good measure, we throw in a guiding star and singing angels and wide-eyed shepherds and three traveling kings or more. This narrative is foundational to the understanding of our faith. But what does it mean to have faith? Especially in this day and age, practically speaking, what bearing does the story of the birth of Jesus with all of its miracle and mystery 
have today. When we feel like we're facing endless war and the destruction of our world and the demise of our society and we don't know whom to trust. Is faith up to the task? Is it even relevant anymore? The first thing I really want to establish in this two-part worship theme is that it's okay to ask these questions because God can handle it. God can handle our fear, and God is not challenged by our doubt. Now, I know that the holy text tells us that we should not fear at least 365 times, and that's because God knows that we will fear every day, so we need the reminder. And to his credit, Paul does not say do not be afraid in the passage that Sarah read for us this morning. He says that God did not give us a spirit of fear. In other words, fear is part of what it means to be human. It's what we do with that fear that matters. The people to whom Paul was writing knew something about fear as they faced ridicule and even persecution simply by following Jesus as the church formed in the early days. They likely feared for Paul's life too and for good reason. He was in prison again. Things didn't look good this time and he would not make it out alive. Paul likely knew that. He could see it coming, I'm sure. And perhaps that's why he doesn't talk about church structure and order in this letter as he does in others. This is a pastoral letter. He's speaking from his own experience. He's encouraging the faith community to show an unashamed commitment to the gospel, no matter the cost, even to the point of death. Death as a consequence for faith in Jesus was an ever-present reality in that context. And Paul is not sugarcoating that. Instead, he says the power and love of God are greater than even our biggest fear, our worst phobia. And that is the spirit that lives within us. By focusing on the power and love of God, Paul refuses the temptation to set fear and courage against each other. It would be easy to read the passage that way, but he's not setting fear and courage against each other. He's rejecting that kind of dualistic thinking. But we humans, we love our dualistic thinking. We find comfort in viewing the world in an either-or dynamic. One way is right, so the other is wrong. It has to be this way, so it can't be that way. It's natural for us to think this way, but it is a lower order of thinking. It doesn't take much work for our brains to sift and sort and hold on to one idea and discard the other one. It's much more difficult for us to hold everything in tension. This is what we would call non-dualistic thinking, a both and approach. And of course, it doesn't apply to everything. We have to make choices or we wouldn't make it out the door every morning. But a non-dualistic approach is helpful when we need a higher order of thinking, when the issue is more complex, when there may not just be one right answer, one way of seeing the situation. When we're talking about government leadership, for example, or the grave illness of a loved one, or war, or climate change, or the economy, all of those things that we fear right now. The point that Paul is trying to make is that even in the face of real and terrifying possibilities, we have a choice, and that is to face our fear 
with courage. And we've all heard this by now. We know that courage is not the absence of fear. It is the strength to withstand danger and fear and difficulty. Courage is the strength to withstand the fear. Practically speaking, this means that we have the capacity to live with a both-and mentality. We can live with both fear and courage as we continue to put one foot in front of the other by the grace of God. And we learn how to do this through a little something that we call self-discipline. Now, this is where Paul and I usually lose people, because who likes to talk about discipline in any form? Methodists do. Self-discipline is what we are known for historically. That's why we're called Methodists, because of the methods that we use. In fact, the term Methodist was hurled at John Wesley and Charles Wesley and others in those early days of the movement as an insult. But John Wesley liked it so much that he adopted it. Because there was no use in denying that self-discipline was a core value of his faith. For Wesley, and for us, I hope the word self-discipline describes the ability to push forward, to stay motivated, and to act regardless of what we are feeling, even if that feeling is fear. Self-discipline is hard work, no doubt, and it takes practice, which is one of the reasons that we use the phrase spiritual practice rather than spiritual discipline often in our tradition. Practicing our faith is what allows the spirit of power and love to grow in us as we stick close to the good news that we're not alone, that God is with us, that Jesus showed us the way, that the Holy Spirit is here to help us as we walk that path for the sake of our souls and for the sake of the world. It's a regular rhythm of spiritual practice that opens us up to both and thinking so that we can hold space in our minds for truths that seem contradictory, like God is both three and one. Jesus is both human and divine. Our salvation, our wholeness is both already and not yet. And that is why we wait actively. That's the heart of the Advent season that is actively approaching us, and it's the work of every follower of Jesus every day. To practice faith, to push forward, to stay motivated, to take action regardless of fear, in spite of it even. This is discipline. It's discipline that makes us Disciples, do you see the connection in those words? To be a disciple, we must both believe and follow. Believe and follow Jesus. And that way of living takes practice, and now is as good a time as any. It's actually a perfect time because our church calendar year comes to a close next week. And it begins again on November 27th the first Sunday in the season of Advent. So now is time to consider how we will practice our faith as the commercial spirit of Christmas threatens to overtake the hope, love, joy, and peace that our season of waiting and preparing for God offers us. So now is the time to ask, what spiritual practices 
will help me face fear with courage. Maybe it's the weekly Advent study that our district superintendent is going to begin in a few weeks. I'll tell you more about that later. Maybe it's a regular act of service with Lighthouse Food Pantry or with Camino Real after school program. Maybe it's an expression of giving to support people in our community like Jardín de los Niños. Whatever we choose, I pray that we remember that we do have a choice. We have a choice that allows us to keep our fears from turning into phobias. And that kind of power makes a real and practical difference in both our own lives and in the world. Amen? Amen. In our time of prayer, we invite the kids to look in their worship bags. In your worship bags, kids, you will find your wooden cross. I invite you to hold that in your hand as a reminder that when we pray, we are connected. We're connected with God, and we're connected with each other, and we're connected with all people who pray around the world. Let's take a deep breath. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, on this Veterans Day weekend, we give you thanks for all of those men and women who have trusted in your power and your love to face fear with courage. We thank you for the real and tangible difference that makes in our everyday life. We thank you for the privilege of living in this wonderful country. We pray for our friends around the world that they would know your power and your love every day. We ask that you would grant us the courage to face our fear, whatever that looks like for us, so that in our life, in our daily actions, we are pointing to you. In Jesus' name we pray, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.